Hey, we want to thank you for listening today to a sermon from Edwards Lake Church. And we hope that you recognize the message of God as we open his word together and examine his incredible life-changing teaching. We pray that this message will challenge you, motivate you, or touch you in some way. Let's open the Bible together. It is a story of people that are not enjoying the phones that we get to enjoy in the country of their own. Um, but it does not change God. God is the same in this story as he is today. Uh, if we were to look at what's happening to God's people, which at this point in time in Daniel is the children of Israel. Right? These are his, his children that he has chosen to be holy as he is holy uh, and to set apart from the people of the world that have uh, a, a different set of standards that they would live to, different way of acting than God's people uh, would have acted. Uh, but when God gave a law to his people, when he told them, you need to be holy because I have chosen you out from among the rest of the world. There were some parts of that law that said, if you do not act in the way that I have told you, there will be consequences to it. And I want to look in Deuteronomy chapter 28, um, if we think about what's happening in the time of, of Daniel here. We look at God's people that has been divided into two because of the wickedness that is taking place amongst God's people. Um, if you remember the first two kings in the, in the divided kingdom, once you have a northern kingdom, which is Israel, and a southern kingdom, which is Judah, in this northern kingdom of Israel, there are no righteous kings. In fact, if you remember the first king, Jeroboam, as soon as he gets his ten tribes and sets up his northern kingdom, he says, I'm afraid that the people will go down to worship in Jerusalem and that they'll want to leave this kingdom and the, the power that I have in my kingdom will be kind of stripped away from me by their exodus. So what does he do? He sets up an idol in the northern part and the southern part of the kingdom so that they can worship that way. And that's just the beginning of the wickedness that continues throughout Israel, uh, the northern kingdom in this divided kingdom. You see, idol worship was continual. They constantly say things like, um, he continued in the ways of Jeroboam, or the wickedness of Jeroboam, which was giving themselves over to the same things that the nations around them were doing. That God had called them out to be set apart from, called them out to be different from. They were doing the exact same things. And because of that, in 722 B.C., God sends Assyria down and destroys them. They are no longer a remnant of God's people, there is no promise of their return. They are destroyed for their wickedness. And then you have the southern kingdom, which is Judah, and you have righteous and unrighteous kings that, that come, and um, some of them kind of follow the same ways of Jeroboam in certain ways, even though they're from the lineage of Rehoboam. It's where the lineage of David runs through in the southern kingdom of Judah. They fall in and out of idol worship, and eventually, because of their wickedness also, about 110, 115 years later, God gives them into the hands of the Babylonians. And so God's people that he has chosen from amongst everyone to be his own children 
are now removed from their land. They do not have any headship in the form of a physical king. They do not have any freedom. They do not have any authority. And, and, and why would men become so powerful that they could come and they could take God's people out of their own land that God had promised to them, the promised land of Canaan that God had given to them? How is it that men could become so strong that they could come and they could take God's people away? Well, that's where, if we read in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I'm going to start in verse 45, which is way into the text, but, but um, here is in the law of Moses, which Daniel will reference in chapter 9 in a prayer to God, in which he says, the curses from the law of Moses have come upon us. And I think he is directly what we read here in Deuteronomy chapter 28 in verse 45, because it says, so all these curses, and he'll mention those a little bit more in just a couple of verses, but all these curses shall come on you, and this is Moses talking to the people, shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed. Why? Because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes, which he commanded you. And they shall become a sign and a wonder on you and your descendants forever. And that is these curses. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore, you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far, afar from the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance, who will have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. Okay? I like that it says here, a a nation from afar, from the end of the earth. Like, Babylon actually, the Babylonians actually come to destroy Assyria. And guess who kind of gets caught up in all of it? Some of it through their, their own actual fault of the king. But Israel does. Babylon is like 1,600 miles away from Israel. But God takes these people that are in the west <laughs> and brings them 1,600 miles to Israel. They're really defeating Assyria, but God raises them up to take his people captive because his people were wicked. Because of their own disobedience to his word, God brought Babylon to bring this destruction. So as we actually get into the text of Daniel here, and we start in in chapter 1, we see in the text... See, I thought I had not put any tiny text on here. I was giving Steve a hard time about that, just, but I, I, apparently I did. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to, to Daniel chapter 1 so you can actually read what's up there. In Daniel chapter 1 it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, 
and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his god. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence of every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. Okay, what does it say at the beginning there? That Nebuchadnezzar became so powerful that he came, first destroyed Assyria, and then took away God's people. It says in verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Nebuchadnezzar has no authority to do this. Now, when he comes and he takes the articles of the temple... Um, you got to believe that he thinks, not only am I coming in and I, am I taking this people, but I am also defeating their God. Because their God could not protect them from me. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in just a minute. But I also want to see the young men that are here uh, in, this, in this passage. And this might be just a little bit embarrassing because... All of the young people are not here except for a few. So I'm going to ask for a show of hands. Young people between the age of 13 and 18, please raise your hand. Okay. I see we, we have four. Okay. And, and in particular, because these are mentioned as young men, I'm going to direct your attention here for just a minute. Here you have Hananiah and Mishael. All right? These are young men that are removed from their home. Everything that they have known in their life taken away from them. Their families either killed or also taken captive and they are separated from one another. And these are the young men that God chooses because of their faithfulness. God chooses to show Nebuchadnezzar who he is. And so the question I have is, and I think about back to being 13 to 18 years old in my, my immaturity at that time, which was, was a long time ago, so it's even hard to remember my immaturity at that time. Would I have been ready to do what these young men were doing now? And are parents preparing their children to leave home, which is not the same as this captivity, but one day go into a world which will try and change them. I have some underlined parts up here that talk about what they did to these young men. First of all, it says they were supposed to learn the language of the Chaldeans, and they were supposed to learn the culture of the Chaldeans, and I'm sure that they were supposed to dress like the Chaldeans. 
And they were supposed to have the wisdom of the, the mages and the astrologers. And they were going to be, in every way, a Chaldean. So much so that their names, which if you look at the endings of some of their names, like Daniel and Mishael, you see that L at the end of their name? That's God. Their names are Hebrew names that have God embedded in them. And what do the Babylonians do? They change their names to say things like Bel to Shazer. Bel, does that ring a bell? Baal? Or um, is it Marduk? Is that his? Yeah, don't look at my wife because she knows these things better than I do. Marduk, the, the chief god of the Babylonians. Nigo, uh, Abednego is a form of the, the, the god of the moon, I believe. Nebo of the Babylonians. God, God's name is embedded in these young men's names. And the Chaldeans say, no, 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 we're going to make you like us. And so we're going to give you names that are from our God's names. And these young men, they accept all of this because none of those things would defile them. To learn the language of the Chaldeans would not defile them. To, in, in modest dress, I'm assuming, dress like the Chaldeans would not defile them. To even learn the culture and the literature of the Chaldeans would not defile them. Right? But would they continue to serve God in every other way because God's been taken captive. His people, no longer in the land. From a Babylonian perspective, we mentioned it already, Daniel 1.1. Nebuchadnezzar has raised himself up and taken God's people captive. And he removes some of the things from the temple. And what does he do with those things? He puts them in the house of his God. Now they're going to serve in my temple worship. Now they're going to be a collection in my God's temple. And so in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar, in the mind of really every king, who defeated another king, my God is greater than your God, and I have taken authority from Jehovah. Now, if you're Daniel, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, I prefer to call them by their Hebrew names, if you're one of them, why would you continue to cling to this outdated law that God had given when he couldn't even save you from these wicked and pagan men? And I wonder if part of the preparation of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is they heard the voice of the prophets that were speaking to them that said, God is raising up a nation to take you because of your wickedness. Maybe they had read Deuteronomy chapter 28 where it said, eventually because of your wickedness, God is going to call somebody. Nebuchadnezzar's not going to raise himself up. God is going to raise him up. And when you go into captivity, it's not because this nation is more powerful than you, it's because God raised him up to do it. And so while in the mind of Nebuchadnezzar and maybe the mind of the majority of the Israelites, because we don't see these kinds of things happening, with the rest of the Israelites, what we see is we see Daniel say, I will not defile myself with something that is contrary to God's law. God has said, I can only eat certain things, I can only drink certain... I can only be a part of the things that God has said I can be a part of. And because of that, even though I'm in a foreign nation, 
in a place that's unfamiliar to me, removed from my family and everything that I was comfortable with and knew before. And even though these men are making me look like a Chaldean in every way, I will not defile myself with anything in this land that's contrary to God's word. And so he says, I cannot eat the choice food that God has told me not to partake in. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was not the nicest guy in the world. Uh, whenever they ask, hey, um, commander of the eunuchs, or uh, whatever the, the position of the, the, the commander was there, they say, uh, can we just eat vegetables and water for, instead of this food? Commander says, if I do that, the king might cut my head off. And if I'm Daniel, I'm thinking, maybe we should just do it. Doesn't sound like a very nice guy. Probably should stop asking about this. What they do is they go to the next person. And they say, hey, for 10 days, can we just eat vegetables and drink water? Because I can't eat this food that God has condemned. And these 13 to 18-year-olds defy the orders of the king, and they eat vegetables and water for 10 days. And God causes them to prosper. And God gives them abilities beyond all of the other wise men that are there. And it's not just the other Israelites that are part of this learning program. There's like a three-year like, school that they're going to, the school of the Chaldeans for three years. And at the end of it, it says they would go before the king, and the king would talk to them and see how smart they were and choose what he was going to do with them. And it says that they weren't just smarter than other, all the other people in the Chaldean program, the three-year Chaldean program. They were smarter than all the wise men in all of the land. Why? Because God didn't, raise, God didn't allow Nebuchadnezzar to become more powerful than, than he was. God raised Nebuchadnezzar up. God is the one that gave Nebuchadnezzar, and God is the same one that gave Daniel the ability to understand dreams and visions and the ability to give wisdom to the king to such a point that where do we see Daniel, Hananiah, and Azariah? They're actually in the king's court. They are his own uh, personal wise men that give him understanding on what he should do, that he speaks with. And what better position to be in to show Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, I know you, you think that you're amazing because of God raising you up to take over his people. But it's not you. It's not you. It's God. And whatever you think you know about God, based on the way that you look at your gods, it's not right. And, and Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they show Nebuchadnezzar who God truly is. In chapter 2, we have a vision that comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to leave out so much information, but it's the way that it has to be. In, in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has this vision. And maybe you remember this story where the vision just it, it disturbs him. It's, it's a dream. And he seems to be having it so much that he, he, he can't even sleep because it's concerning to him. And he makes this command. And he brings in all of his other wise men. And this is the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. So these, men, these young boys are no older than they were when they got there. 
they're, they're not 35 at this point. I don't know why I said that, except that I'm 35. Uh, I don't feel very old, so maybe they aren't 55 at this point. <laughs> These are still very young men. And, and Nebuchadnezzar looks at all of his other wise men, and he says, I've had a dream that is concerning to me, and I want to know its interpretation, and I want to know that that interpretation is true. And so if, instead of me telling you what the dream is, you telling me the interpretation, because I know you guys are a bunch of liars, is literally what Nebuchadnezzar says to his wise men, you know what I want you to do? I want you to tell me what I dreamed, and then I want you to tell me what it means. So Nebuchadnezzar was a little bit of an angry guy, but he was a pretty smart guy. He said, this is concerning to me. I need to know that what you're telling me is the truth. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to put you to the test. And we have a little insight into the way that the Babylonians viewed gods, viewed God, viewed deity, those that were controlling the things in this world. They answer and they say, listen, Nebuchadnezzar, there is not a man on earth who could declare the matter for the king inasmuch as no great king or ruler has ever asked anything like this of any magician, conjurer, or Chaldean. Moreover, which the king demands is difficult. And there is no one else who could declare it to the king except gods, and this is how they think of gods, whose dwelling place is not with mortal flesh. So they say, the gods are pretty smart. We know that. If you squint a little bit, you see that they're kind of saying they're not living gods. And we kind of talked about that in class this morning. There's one, there is one true and living God. You say, yeah, they're, they're these gods, and, and they may be really smart, but they don't live with us. Like, they don't help us. They don't tell us anything. They're just kind of up in the cosmos doing their thing, and maybe they're pulling some strings, but they don't give us wisdom. They don't give us understanding. They don't tell us what we should and should do. They don't reveal mysteries. They don't do that. They are not here amongst us who are living in this flesh. And so they say, this is impossible for men to do. Maybe the gods could do it because they're smarter than us, but they don't reveal mysteries to us. They don't give us wisdom. They don't direct our steps, direct our lives. But then Nebuchadnezzar gets so mad because they're a bunch of liars, as he says, he says, I'm going to kill all the wise men, every one of them, okay? Young, old, those that have been with him forever. And they get to Daniel, and Daniel says, hey, what's, what's the rush? <laughs> Why is this command of the king so important? What is, and the, the commander tells him what's going on, that the king has, has had a dream, he's told his wise men to, uh, tell him the dream and its interpretation. No one can do it. The king is angry. He's given the command to, to put to death all the wise men. And Daniel says, give me, give me just a little bit of time so that God can reveal the dream and its interpretation. All right? And uh, the commander actually, it seems like, is excited about it. When he goes back to Nebuchadnezzar later, he says, I have found men that can do this. He didn't find anybody that could do this. He went to kill them. And they said, wait, 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 wait. Give us some time and we will make known the dream and its interpretation. 
And so Daniel goes before Nebuchadnezzar after asking God for help, God giving him the, the, the dream and its interpretation and a vision. Daniel prays in praise, praise in praise, P-R-A-I-S-E, to God for his ability to do this and for his willingness to give understanding. And Daniel turns around and he says to Nebuchadnezzar, this thing that you have asked men to do, the thing that you have, the king is about the, which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. He sounds just like the rest of the Chaldeans. He sounds just like the rest of the wise men. No man can do this. Here's where Daniel differs from them. His understanding of who God is, the one true and living God, is different than the understanding that the rest of the Chaldeans have, or, or those that are Chaldeans have, and the wise men. And the he is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. And he goes on to tell Nebuchadnezzar, you had a dream, and it was a statue, and the statue was made of four different types of materials. Head of gold, shoulders of bronze, uh, sh shoulders of, of silver, belly of bronze, legs of iron, with feet with, mixed with iron and clay. And he says, those are four kingdoms. And the four kingdoms, of those four kingdoms, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. Because you're the greatest of all of them. But then he proceeds to talk about kingdom after kingdom after kingdom that would come after him. And all I can see in that is that just like God raised Nebuchadnezzar up to be able to take Israel, God will raise up the next kingdom, which happens to be Medo-Persia, raises them up to take over Babylon. And then God raises up Greece to take over Medo-Persia. And then God raises up Rome to be the world power. Because God says all of these things will happen in the future, we know God actually did all of these things as they came to pass. So Daniel is really saying two things here. He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, there's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries that man cannot determine. But he's not so far off that you have to cry out because maybe he's taking a, a trip or maybe he's sleeping. Maybe you have to be really, really... That's not the God we serve. We have a God that reveals mystery in truth so that we know how to act. We know how to walk. We know how to live. So, after this interpretation, this dream and this interpretation is told to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar is impressed with this God. And he's impressed with Daniel. He takes Daniel, he makes him the chief, and then Daniel requests that... Um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that they also be raised up. And so they're all put into this position to where the king has the ability to reach out to them and to, to speak to them. I don't know if this is 100% true, but it seems like at the end of chapter 1 when it says that, they were, that the king consulted them, I wonder if that's actually after what happened in chapter 2. Anyway, sorry, that's me thinking out loud, I guess. Okay, but then in the next chapter, in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold. You are the greatest of all the kingdoms. Don't forget God put you there. 
God is the one that puts you in that position of being the head of gold, being the, the power and the authority, it, the greatest in the entire world. God puts you there. And in chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar says, I'm pretty great. I'm the head of gold. I'm the greatest of all kingdoms. Maybe I should make a 90-foot gold statue and put it out in the plain of Dura so that whenever the sun shines on it, everybody from everywhere can see how amazing I am. And when we play all these instruments, Nebuchadnezzar says, I, I am making a mandate that when you hear the harp and the flute and the lyre and the psaltery and the trigon, and I don't even know what any of these are, but they were seemingly musical instruments not just from Babylon but from all over the place from all these nations that Babylon had taken captive, almost as if to say, look, when you guys hear the music, which is just this giant cacophony of, of sounds, you bow down and you worship this golden image that I have made. Why? Because I am the head of gold. And Nebuchadnezzar exalts himself. And it wasn't Nebuchadnezzar's place to exalt himself. God had risen him up to put him in that position. And so God is going to use these young men, once again, to show him, to show Nebuchadnezzar who he is. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they know what are the first two commandments of God, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no graven images. You shall not worship idols. And so remember what, they, what, what Daniel says in chapter 1 and verse 8? You may think that you're in a position of authority because God raised you up to take his people, but we know God is worthy of our worship, and so therefore we can't bow down to this idol. And it seems like some of the other jealous magicians and stuff, they come to Nebuchadnezzar and say, King, live forever. These men from Israel that you've appointed, they don't, they don't obey our gods. They don't bow down to the idol. And so Nebuchadnezzar sends for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And when they come before Nebuchadnezzar, it's almost as if he's saying, maybe you didn't hear the music or you just lost your mind for a minute. Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? If you're ready... If you're ready at the moment that you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. Here's your second chance, just in case you didn't hear the music before. But if you do not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And this is his perspective on gods. What God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? You see, Nebuchadnezzar is placing himself above the authority of God. He says, I took your entire nation captive. And your God might be able to interpret dreams, but what is he going to do when I throw you into the fiery furnace? How are you going to be able to get out of this? There is no God that can save you from my hand. And you probably know the story. 
the, the response of the, four, of the three, three friends is almost like, you don't even have to play the music. There's no need. There's no need for that. It says, if you're going to do this, if it be so, our God whom we serve, he is able to deliver. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They say you want to know what God can deliver you, deliver us from your hands? Jehovah can. And he may not choose to. That's okay. We know he can. And because we know that about God, we're not going to disobey him to obey you. We're not going to serve your idols. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into this knowing that they very well might die. And I don't know what their understanding of afterlife or anything is. They don't mention that here. They don't mention, but we will get a better place in heaven. They say God is worthy of being obeyed because of who he is. And because of that, we will not worship you. We will not bow down to you. We will not give up our obedience to him for your sake. We will only serve him. And I, if you know the story again, you know what happened. Nebuchadnezzar, he's an angry guy, right? He says to his wise man, or he says to his, his mighty men, heat the furnace seven times hotter than it is normally. Because I want them to know just how much authority I have here on this earth. So much so that when the when I keep wanting to say wise men, when these valiant men take Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego that are bound and go to throw them into the furnace, it's so hot that when they get close to it, they die. And, and what God is there that could save these young boys from this furnace that's thousands of degrees? And Nebuchadnezzar looks in. I'm assuming it is to see them writhing in, ang writhing in anguish as they're perishing in the midst of the fire. And what does he see? He sees three men walking around in the fire. Unbound, not harmed, not touched. There's a fourth in there with him. And he is like a son of the gods. And he cries out. And he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego... Servant of the Most High God. What does Nebuchadnezzar understand? What is his position at this point? Is he saying, now I'm going to throw you in this fire over here because surely there's no way he could deliver you from two fires. Now I'm going to take you to the gallows. Now I'm going to put you in the pit of lions. That was the Medes and the Persians, but still, it holds, holds true. That's not what Nebuchadnezzar says. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, come out of the fire, servants of the Most High God. Not an amazing God. The Most High God. Not Baal, not Marduk, not Nebo. And following this, Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, doing what? What does he fully admit here? Violating the king's command. Breaking my law to serve their God. Put their trust in him, violating the king's command, yielding up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to sheep, inasmuch as there is no other god who can do this. Four men four young boys between the age of 13 and 18 years old, because of their faith in God and their unwillingness to bend to what was happening in the world that day, because they knew that God is in control, even in the darkest hour, in the worst time, when things look like they are, like nothing is going right. He said, we know God is in control. We know God has power to change any of this at any point in time if he, wish, if he wishes to. And we, because we know that we want our life, regardless of whether it means, it means punishment by your hands, Nebuchadnezzar, whether it means ridicule, whatever it might be, because we know who God is, we will not stop serving him. And because of that, Nebuchadnezzar makes a law that nobody can say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so in a chapter where Nebuchadnezzar sets out to exalt himself at the beginning, he ends up humbling himself and exalting the God of Israel. Why? Because three young men between 13 and 18 said, we will not disobey our God in favor of what you've asked us to do. And in every other way, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego served the king. They served the nation of Babylon in, in a way that is actually quite exemplary. And it made these moments when they said, I will not disobey my God, all the more important. Because they could look at these young men and say, they're not rebellious. They're not hateful, angry, rebellious young men that are just trying to overthrow the government and come back to Jerusalem. They just said, we will not serve any other God but our own. And that is the statement and the stand that they take at all times. And if we are to be an example to those that are around us, and this is one of the major applications, if they can do this as young men to Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest king in the world at that point in time, what kind of example can we have on the people that are around us every day? If we live lives in the way that God has told us to live our lives, where we are kind and compassionate to those that are around us, where we emulate the same characteristics of God, where he says in, in uh, Exodus chapter 34 that he is compassionate and great, 
and merciful and displays loving kindness. And we don't have the authority to do those things in the way that God is capable of doing them, but our desire is to be more like God in his character. If we live like that every day, and then at some point we have to say, I can't do that. I cannot lie to my customers in my job because it would defile me, because it would be contrary to what God has said in his word. Do you think that has a greater impact than a person who is really rebelling in everything that they're doing at their job and complaining in everything that they're doing in their job, and then all of a sudden, no, I can't do that either? Well, he doesn't want to do anything. He's just a contrarian. He's just angry. He, he's picking and choosing what, for what reason he's not going to obey today. But when they looked at Daniel and they looked at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they said, we know. We know that they're doing this because they will serve no other God but their own. In Daniel chapter 6, whenever he goes to pray, even though there's been this commandment that says you can't pray to anybody except for the king, when the people are trying to figure out how can we catch Daniel in something, and they look at every aspect of his life, and they say, we can't find anything that he's doing wrong. The only way we'll be able to catch Daniel is if we find something where we pit his God against the king. If we can find something where he has to obey his God instead of the law of the land, then we have Daniel, because this is what we know about Daniel. He's not doing anything wrong, but he will not be disobedient to his God. Are we known that way? Are the people that are around us understanding that our service to God takes precedent over everything? And while I will do everything in my can to be a good employee, to be a good student, um, to be a good worker, to be a, a good person in the community, to be a good citizen, all of those things, when it comes to being disobedient to my God, that's never accepted. And it will not happen. And I hope that that's the way that we're known. And not being known for disobedience in all those other areas. And so because of this, Nebuchadnezzar knows who God is. I threw this in here last minute, but chapter 4 is actually written by Nebuchadnezzar. Isn't that kind of amazing? A chapter in the Bible is written by the, the king of Babylon. And you know what's, why it's written by the king of Babylon? Babylon? Because Nebuchadnezzar knows who God is now. And even though he has to go through some things in chapter 4, and he's looking back on those actions that, that take place in chapter 4, he says here, I, Nebuchadnezzar the king, I'm sorry, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the people's nations and men of every language that live on all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. And how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is what Nebuchadnezzar knows about God. And he knows it because four faithful young men stood before him on multiple occasions and told him, this is who God is, in their actions and in their words. So in closing, I want to ask you, who is the son of God? Who is the son? We've been spending this time talking about who is God. Who is the Son of God? Are we displaying that to the people that are around us every day? Remember what God does in chapter 2? He reveals mystery. He reveals mystery. Mystery that was not previously known to man. God made it known. 
Did you know that God tells you what you're supposed to do with your life? The great question of why am I here? What comes after this life? Those are answered in Christ Jesus. John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, that was a familiar passage. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It came down to dwell among men in this manifestation of flesh in which he was a man giving truth to everyone who was around them, giving understanding. John chapter 6, verses 66 through 69, his disciples say, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? How else would we know what to do with our lives except that Christ Jesus came to this world and showed us? He is able to deliver from the greatest enemy. Whatever Babylon looked like at that point in time was nothing in comparison to the enemy that from the time of Adam had control over man. And that was sin. 1 Corinthians 15 and Romans 6 talk about Christ's victory over sin. And in Romans chapter 6 there in particular, it says that we who have been buried with him in baptism have also been raised to walk in newness of life. And we are no longer slaves to sin. Maybe we would think, okay, but that means we have freedom in Christ. That is true, but it's freedom to be enslaved to Christ. And that would seem bad, except for... If you know who Christ is, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew who God was, he's worthy of being served in every way, shape, or form. We have freedom over the greatest enemy, freedom from sin, freedom from sin and death. And he is worthy of our obedience. If you think about what maybe seemed like the darkest hour of mankind, Jesus Christ is put on the cross. in particular for those 12 men that had followed him for so long, can you imagine what they're thinking? This is over. And we know that because they, they scattered. But God had a plan from the beginning of time to do this. And so what Caiaphas thought when he said, it is expedient for one man to die so that all might live, what he thought is we'll put Jesus to death. And we'll take the power from him. And God says, it's been my plan from the beginning of time that I would put Christ on the cross. That he would die so that every single person might have a chance of eternal life. And because Christ has done that, he is worthy of obedience in every action that we take. Every day of our life. And so like Romans there about being buried with Christ in baptism, knowing that when we are raised, we are also raised in Christ. If you are not in Christ before baptism, you are in Christ after baptism, guess how you get into Christ? Baptism. And if I disagree with that, then I don't think that Christ is worthy of obedience. Because that is the avenue that God has given to us. And it's not because the water is special, and it's not because we're worthy of it. You can read some more of that in Daniel as well. It's because God has promised it to us. And God always keeps his promises. If we have faith that Christ can wash our way, can make us clean, can make us pure, can make us holy, 
then why would you not come to Christ through baptism? That you might be raised to walk in newness of life. No longer slaves to the enemy that previously dominated every single person in this world, but now free to follow a risen Savior. If you would like to on Christ through baptism this morning, you have the opportunity to do so as we stand and sing this song. Thanks for listening and studying God's Word with us. We want to help you draw closer to Jesus as your Lord. If you feel some need as a result of today's message, whether that be a need to seek God's salvation or you are just in the need of prayers, please reach out to us. You can find out more about us, including contact information at edwardslakechurch.org. If you want to continue to open God's word with us, please check out other sermons on our podcast or come visit with us at Edwards Lake Church anytime you can. Thanks again, and we pray God's blessings for you.